Chapter sixty two of I Say No. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I Say No by Wilkie Collins. Chapter sixty two. Downstairs. In a moment more, the doctor came in, a brisk, smiling, self sufficient man, smartly dressed with a flower in his buttonhole. A stifling odour of musk filled the room as he drew out his handkerchief with a flourish and wiped his forehead. Plenty of hard work in my line just now, he said. Hello, Mrs. Rook. Somebody has been allowing you to excite yourself. I heard you before I opened the door. Have you been encouraging her to talk? he asked, turning to Emily and shaking his finger at her, with an air of facetious remonstrance. Incapable of answering him, forgetful of the ordinary restraints of social intercourse, with the one doubt that preserved her belief in Mirabel, eager for confirmation, Emily signed to this stranger to follow her into a corner of the room, out of hearing. She made no excuses. She took no notice of his look of surprise. One hope was all she could feel. One word was all she could say after that second assertion of Mirabel's guilt. Indicating Mrs. Rook by a glance at the bed, she whispered the word. Mad? Flippant and familiar, the doctor imitated her. He, too, looked at the bed. "'No more mad than you are, miss. As I said just now, my patient has been exciting herself. I dare say she has talked a little wildly in consequence. Hers isn't a brain to give way, I can tell you. But there's somebody else.' Emily had fled from the room. He had destroyed her last fragment of belief in Mirabel's innocence. She was on the landing, trying to console herself, when the doctor joined her. "'Are you acquainted with the gentleman downstairs?' he asked. "'What gentleman?' "'I haven't heard his name. He looks like a clergyman. "'If you know him, I do know him. I can't answer questions. "'My mind—steady your mind, miss, and take your friend home as soon as you can. "'He hasn't got Mrs. Rook's hard brain. "'He's in a state of nervous prostration, which may end badly. "'Do you know where he lives?' He is staying with his sister, Mrs. Delvin. Mrs. Delvin, she's a friend and patient of mine. Say I'll look in tomorrow morning and see what I can do for her brother. In the meantime, get him to bed and to rest, and don't be afraid of giving him brandy. The doctor returned to the bedroom. Emily heard Mrs. Elmother's voice below. Are you up there, Miss? Yes. Mrs. Elmother ascended the stairs. It was an evil hour, she said, that you insisted on going to this place. Mr. Mirabel— The sight of Emily's face suspended the next words on her lips. She took the poor young mistress in her motherly arms. Oh, my child, what has happened to you? Don't ask me now. Give me your arm. Let us go downstairs. You won't be startled when you see Mr. Mirabel, will you, my dear? I wouldn't let them disturb you. I said nobody should speak to you before myself. The truth is, Mr. Mirabel has had a dreadful fright. What are you looking for? Is there a garden here? Any place where we can breathe the fresh air? There was a courtyard at the back of the house. They found their way to it. A bench was placed against one of the walls. They sat down. "'Shall I wait till you're better before I say any more?' 
Mrs. Elmother asked. No. You want to hear about Mr. Mirabel? My dear, he came into the parlour where I was, and Mr. Rook came in too, and waited, looking at him. Mr. Mirabel sat down in a corner in a dazed state, as I thought. It wasn't for long. He jumped up and clapped his hand on his heart, as if his heart hurt him. I must and will know what's going on upstairs, he says. Mr. Rook pulled him back and told him to wait till the young lady came down. Mr. Mirabel wouldn't hear of it. Your wife's frightening her, he says. Your wife's telling her horrible things about me. He was taken on a sudden with a shivering fit. His eyes rolled and his teeth chattered. Mr. Rook made matters worse. He lost his temper. I'm damned, he says. If I don't begin to think you are the man after all, I've half a mind to send for the police. Mr. Mirabel dropped into his chair. His eyes stared, his mouth fell open. I took hold of his hand, cold, cold as ice. What it all meant, I can't say. Oh, miss, you know. Let me tell you the rest some other time. Emily insisted on hearing more. The end, she cried. How did it end? I don't know how it might have ended if the doctor hadn't come in to pay his visit, you know, upstairs. He said some learned words. When he came to plain English, he asked if anybody had frightened the gentleman. I said Mr. Rook had frightened him. The doctor says to Mr. Rook, Mind what you are about. If you frighten him again, you may have his death to answer for. That cowed Mr. Rook. He asked what he had better do. Give me some brandy for him first, says the doctor, and then get him home at once. I found the brandy and went away to the inn to order the carriage. Your ears are quicker than mine, miss. Do I hear it now? They rose and went to the house door. The carriage was there. Still cowed by what the doctor had said, Mr. Rook appeared, carefully leading Mirabel out. He had revived under the action of the stimulant. Passing Emily, he raised his eyes to her, trembled, and looked down again. When Mr. Rook opened the door of the carriage, he paused with one of his feet on the step. A momentary impulse inspired him with a false courage, and brought a flush into his ghastly face. He turned to Emily. "'May I speak to you?' he asked. She started back from him. He looked at Mrs. Elmother. "'Tell her I am innocent,' he said. The trembling seized on him again. Mr. Rook was obliged to lift him into the carriage. Emily caught at Mrs. Elmother's arm. "'You go with him,' she said. "'I can't.' "'How are you to get back, miss?' She turned away and spoke to the coachman. "'I'm not very well. I want the fresh air.' I'll sit by you. Mrs. Elmother remonstrated and protested in vain. As Emily had determined it should be, so it was. Has he said anything? she asked when they had arrived at their journey's end. He has been like a man frozen up. He hasn't said a word. He hasn't even moved. Take him to his sister and tell her all that you know. Be careful to repeat what the doctor said. I can't face Mrs. Delvin. Be patient, my good old friend. 
I have no secrets from you. Only wait till tomorrow and leave me by myself tonight. Alone in her room, Emily opened her writing case. Searching among the letters in it, she drew out a printed paper. It was the handbill describing the man who had escaped from the inn and offering a reward for the discovery of him. At the first line of the personal description of the fugitive, the paper dropped from her hand. Burning tears forced their way into her eyes. Feeling for her handkerchief, she touched the pocket-book which she had received from Mrs. Rook. After a little hesitation, she took it out. She looked at it. She opened it. The sight of the banknotes repelled her. She hid them in one of the pockets of the book. There was a second pocket, which she had not yet examined. She put her hand into it and touched something, drew out a letter. The envelope, already open, was addressed to James Brown, Esquire, Post Office, Zealand. Would it be inconsistent with her respect for her father's memory to examine the letter? No. A glance would decide whether she ought to read it or not. It was without date or address. A startling letter to look at, for it only contained three words. I say no. The words were signed in initials, S.J. In the instant when she read the initials, the name occurred to her, Sarah Jethro. End of chapter 62